on this episode, I speak with the founder of Family Office Club, Richard Wilson. We talk about how to raise capital for family offices, Richard's seven-figure marketing funnel, and wealth building. You don't want to miss this one. Do stay tuned. Welcome to 2X E-Commerce, the e-commerce marketing growth podcast where you ask questions and I, Kenei, answers them. Also hear from proven marketing growth experts who are number one or number two in specialist areas of online retail marketing. So if you work in or own an online retail business, listen in, get involved, join me, and let's put some fuel to skyrocket your e-commerce growth. So on the inbound marketing strategies, how do you beat Amazon? Natural search and our search engine position is critical to the customer flow through the website. I personally would not have an account process interrupt checkout flow at all. My favorite customer lifetime value calculation is an easy one. It's your average order value times that purchase frequency times uh, your customer lifespan. I'm Kune Campbell. Let's get rolling. If you're looking to grow your business, there's only one way by building real quality customer relationships. Most marketing software will claim they can do this, but will never deliver on their promises. You need to demand more from your marketing software. And that's where Clavio comes in. Clavio helps you build meaningful customer relationships by listening and understanding cues from your customers, allowing you to easily turn that information into valuable marketing messages. That is why 10,000 innovative brands have switched to Clavio. What's the secret to building customer relationships? Tune in to Clavio's Beyond Black Friday docuseries to find out and unlock marketing strategies you can use to keep momentum going year round. Just head over to clavio.com forward slash beyond BF for more. That's clavio.com forward slash beyond BF.com. Hi guys, before we start this episode, I wanted to talk to you about our Facebook mastermind. Um, if you haven't heard about it, it's um, called the e-commerce growth accelerator mastermind Facebook group. Um, I launched this community for founders and experts passionately, you know, involved in e-commerce and it is really for truly ambitious people, you know, looking to impact the markets that they serve. If you are willing and open to share with other members and are involved in e-commerce, um, you know, um, just just join, 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 join. Um, I'm bringing like-minded online entrepreneurs, experts and marketers to this you know, global community. We've had experts, you know, um, as far out as um, from Asia through to Europe and um, the USA and we're, we're just bridging um, we're bridging connections really um, and we're helping building this out building out this ecosystem it's the early days and you know join 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 the group um, if you're involved in, in e-commerce to get to the group all you need to do is go to bitly so b-i-t-l b-i dot l-y b-i-t dot l-y forward slash e-commerce fb it's a bitly link bit.ly forward slash e-commerce fb again bit.ly forward slash e-commerce fb um i would love to connect with you all um and yeah let's let's take this conversation to to the next level um yeah enjoy the show cheers Hi guys, welcome, welcome, welcome to the 2X e-commerce podcast show. I'm your host, Kune Campbell, and this is the podcast dedicated to rapid growth in online retail. And, you know, um, every week we get an expert guest on a topic to help you grow metrics such as conversions, average order value, um, traffic, and ultimately sales. On today's episode, it is something slightly different. We're going to be talking about money, 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 um, but more like investments, you know. Um, and um, some of you might have heard about um, the term family offices, which we're going to talk about. But today's going to be about, you know, um, the about family, you know, offices, and how potentially a family office 
could invest in, you know, your e-commerce business. And um, also want to talk about how, you know, um, they're sort of building out their business because it's quite interesting that, you know, super clever marketers in, in, in this business. Um, so my guest on today's show is um, Richard, Richard Wilson. He has, um, you know, implemented four balance sheet family office solutions for a hundred million dollar, you know, net worth families through his Centi Millionaire Advisors LLC. So Richard is also the founder of Family Office Club, the largest based family office association with over 1,750 registered family office members. And they run events, they run podcasts. He's published over 10 books. Um, he, you know, they're a global business. Um, yeah, he's quite an interesting individual. And um, without further ado, I'd like to welcome Richard to the show. Welcome. Yeah. Thank you for having me here. Cheers. Richard, I had probably haven't done you sufficient justice, you know, introducing you and your businesses. Um, so could you take a minute or two to, to give yourself an intro? Well, I don't want to uh, bore individuals, but I think uh, the summary line of it would be that we exclusively look to serve the ultra wealthy at 30 million or 100 million plus. 80% of our clients are worth over $100 million each that we help put together solutions for. We also offer 25 live events per year, and that's where we have the 1,750 registered investors within the Family Office Club. But I think probably most importantly for this interview and just knowing your audience or most of your audience is that a lot of the things I think you guys teach about marketing, lead gen, growing an audience, retargeting, optimizing your funnel, those are all things I've had to master to grow the Family Office Club. And I spent the last 12 years growing my marketing chops. And the only reason I survived in the Family Office jungle is I've got just enough expertise uh, in a very focused area on serving the ultra-wealthy, but then also a lot of marketing expertise. And it's the two of them combined that create the magic. And I'm sure some podcast listeners here probably agree that um, in a competitive space, having just one strong suit or skill set may not be enough to beat the competition. But if you're an expert in manufacturing sunglasses or in auto parts uh, retail, and you're also an expert in getting distribution access or in optimizing your website, those two things combined might be enough. And that's what I've found. So I'm happy during this interview to talk about the marketing angle, capital raising, investors. We'll just go whatever direction you'd like to go. Let's let's, let's do it. Let's do it. Amazing. <laughs> I'm, I'm, I'm excited. Okay. Um, so... Family offices, um, just off the back of, um, so, so from what you're saying, um, you have people who've made a fortune, um, high net worth, alternate high net worth individuals, and, um, they're looking to grow their money because money in the bank is, you know, um, will depreciate. Um, so, um, on the other side of the scale, you, you facilitate those connections. Is, is, is that what, you know, your business does in, in a nutshell? Yeah, that's right. We've got the events where people can network with each other. And then importantly, we don't raise capital as a hired investment bankers or capital raisers. We're representing the investors. Uh, but like one I sent an agreement to this morning, for example, we're helping them source investments. So we do help make the connections, but we represent the investor. Uh, we're not calling 100 investors a day trying to raise capital like a boiler room you know, a Wolf of Wall Street situation. We're, we're representing the allocator. <laughs> got it, got it, got it. And um, do you have any e-commerce um, successes as clients? You know, uh, many, any e-commerce, you know, million, multi-millionaires? As yeah, for sure. Uh, for sure. I'm, uh, I've got a meeting coming up in two weeks with someone who is in the uh, fintech space and just had a, bil a billion dollar exit and uh, is worth over 300 himself. Uh, and that's one that we're, we're onboarding uh, over this next quarter. Sounds exciting. Really, really exciting. Okay. So let's, um, you know, um, talk about, um, I, th I guess we'll talk about marketing, your marketing, what your marketing looks like. And then we could segue into, actually, I think listeners who want to first of all, figure out, um, you know, how to attract, you know, investors, family office investors, and then we segue sure. into, you know, your marketing. Okay. Sure, so, sure. um, you know, some, most of our listeners own e-commerce businesses, um, you know, a portion of, 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 of the base may be looking for capital to further grow their business or to expand their products. Um, what's the right way um, to, to connect with um, high net worth individuals? Sure. Uh, well, any deal that gets done, it took me about 10 years to figure this out. Uh, it can be seen through these three trust curves. There's a trust uh, curve, they have to move up on who you are, who the executive team is, the trust curve of understanding your industry, 
in the trust curve of your specific offer or your specific deal. So if somebody's known you for a decade, they're likely to invest if they like you and like what you've done over that time because they know you so well, they might be okay if they don't understand your e-commerce business. But if somebody doesn't know you at all, but they have already invested in other payment processors or other you know, uh, retail companies like yours, then they're familiar with the industry, the mechanics, maybe the metrics of how a subscription online MRR type business works, then they might be willing to invest. Or if they're very familiar with your deal, they're local to you, uh, the investors in your same city, etc. They could come check out your office, your team, see how you operate, then that will help. And I think it's one of the most important things to bring up when trying to attract investors because if you run out of friends and family to raise money from, where do you go? Uh, if you just call on random investors and you're based in San Diego and you're calling on investors in Chicago that don't know you, don't commonly invest in e-commerce, aren't close to the actual asset that you're running or the business you're running, you're going to be kind of dead in the water. Whereas if you compare that to only reaching out to local investors or only investors who you know have had exits in e-commerce, and they're one of uh, companies that have been taken out by Amazon, uh, et cetera, then those people are very informed and they'll be strategically helpful to you. And you don't have to teach them the ABCs of your space. So it's really important to think about when you go into a meeting, which trust curve do you need to move them up? And if you're not making progress, maybe it's because you're starting at ground zero on all three trust curves and that might be stopping your progress. Mm -hmm. So you can essentially build that leverage by, you know, um, you know, maximizing one trust curve and then building up, you know, tobacco even two. And then mm-hmm. building off the back of it, and and I guess that's why there's some like specialist, you know, um, you know, um, VCs or um, angel investors that you know, um, just focus on one industry or one vertical because they, you know, as you said, um, they they understand the industry, um, mm-hmm. they know the the um, the microeconomics, you know. Okay. Right. Right. Um. So, um, what are the so um, what what would be the first step in um, what, what should they prepare? You know, um, in the preparations, what should be the first step to towards um, you know um, successfully you know um, securing um, you know a, a deal from a family office? Sure, sure. I think uh, with e-commerce businesses, sometimes people who run one run several, and a sophisticated investor is going to ask about that, and they're going to want you to be focused or. If you're not focused and you've got three different businesses going, most investors will want a piece of all three, not just one in case your attention shifts. Or you know, if you give up 30% equity in one, you still own 100% of the other two. You know, They might be worried you're going to put more effort into the ones where you get to keep 100% of the profits versus only, only 70%. So that's something to do. Uh, getting your books in order is a good idea. Getting a uh, pitch deck in place and a one-pager on your deal so that you can... Um, concisely explain your unique value and not to waste an investor's time. uh, You need to really research who they are before the meeting and make sure that you know your competition, the type of investor you're going to and yourself well enough that you can narrow down to a single sentence, why you matter on planet earth to this investor. And you can use that in a voicemail then in an email to get their attention. You could use it on stage at an event or when you first meet somebody uh, or on the front page of your pitch deck or the top of your one pager But if you're not willing to put in the time to really know why it's a unique opportunity to invest in your e-commerce business versus some other one, you know, why should someone else spend their time trying to figure that out if you haven't done that as the CEO? So you have to be pretty thoughtful and intentional on that. Yeah, makes sense. Makes sense. And then um, what about um, when, what what is the structure of a a family, you know, office, Um, you know, um, over typical family office? Sure. Uh, many of them have uh, complex estate planning or they should have that in place. Uh, mm-hmm. A lot of them fail to do so right after becoming liquid, but then figure that out after two, three, four years, hopefully. Mm-hmm. Uh, many times they have many different trusts that are set up. So transactions might need to come from different trusts. Many of them have foundations set up. If they're worth over 50 million or 75 million, they might have a foundation for some charitable giving. Uh, a lot of my clients have 30, 40, sometimes 100 plus LLCs and dozens and dozens of K1s to track that are coming in each year. Um, so a lot of them have a lot going on. <laughs> yeah. yeah. They're a high power accountant. And when they don't, it's a huge mess. And a lot of times what happens is somebody might be listening to your podcast right now and they might have an e-commerce company doing two, three million a year in profit. 
And maybe their current CPA can keep up with that because it's still not that complex. It's one LLC perhaps, or maybe two or three businesses. But after you have an exit for 60 million or 160 million, et cetera, uh, things might get a lot more complex very quickly. You know, you mm-hmm. might want to um, have things in place to help you with taxation. You yeah. might start acquiring more personal and business assets, like buying the office building that you reside in or buying a third and fourth home. You might buy a private jet and you might start investing in other people's operating businesses more broadly. And you might do five, seven investments per year. All of a sudden, it's 10 times more complex and you might be the most, you know, uh, biggest headache client for your CPA is just a normal CPA not looking to serve the ultra wealthy exclusively. And then you're basically his learning curve and he's figuring out things and moving slow because he's not used to serving someone like you. And that's why people really need family office solutions all around them when they're ultra wealthy, because uh, if they're not used to dealing with your level of complexities, then they're just going to drop the ball and not be able to keep up and not be able to do a professional job of documenting that use of your private jet or valuing your, your property correctly or getting the right write-offs that you should get. So who builds the structure of a family office? Um, we help put together uh, the structure and the moving pieces and the, the process parts and oversee some of the uh, estate planning components. And then there's uh, almost always a estate planning attorney to draft the legal documents, which has to be done by uh, you know a, a licensed attorney. And then uh, usually a high-power accounting firm to help with balance sheets uh, and back office administration and accounting for the family office. Mm-hmm. And then uh, usually there's an investment team. Uh, and lots of times family offices, uh, which could be helpful to those listening, uh, segment their investments into three different compartments. Okay. So the first one is uh, defense, like traditional wealth management, diversify things, put it in stocks and bonds, commodities, fund managers, etc. And that's compartment one. Compartment two is putting things into cash flow and commercial real estate. And compartment three would be direct investments into operating businesses like a e-commerce business, perhaps. Okay. Makes sense. Makes sense. And then what about the the ratio? What, 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 how, how do they, you know... Um, how they die, what's a proportion and what goes where defense cash flow and direct investment. Sure. sure. Um, you know, it has to be unique to the family's risk preferences and needs. And my experience has been the more conservative the family and the more that it's the next generation or the third generation running things, the more defensive they'll become unless the family's done a really good job of passing down the entrepreneurial genes and instilling a sense of resourcefulness. <laughs> Let's talk about that. You know. but, but yeah, please continue. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. But I mean, in general, a lot of families I see will have anywhere from a 25 to 50, 60% in the defensive compartment, you know, 20 to 40% in cash flow and commercial real estate, and then usually 10 to 20, maybe 25% into direct investments and operating businesses uh, as the, the general split. But it has to change greatly based on your risk preferences, time horizon. You know, literally, we, we ask clients 50 questions when we start to work with them. And it's not a good idea to take anyone's advice unless they've asked you, you know, at least 50 questions because otherwise they're not really serving you. They're just kind yeah. of uh, throwing something out there as a template. Yeah. So, you know, um, you're, you know, right there, you know, um, you're spearheading, you know, a business that, um, you know, relates with, um, with high net worth individuals and high net worth families. Um, what's your take on, um, you know, entrepreneurs, you know, um, you know, risk takers, trailblazers, you know, adventurers, really, you know, people who decide to um, just go against the tide, take those risks and, you know, get the rewards, you know, how they, you know, hand over or, you know, carry over their legacy, not just in the material, the wealth, you know, um, but in spirits, you know, um, in, in, in behavior to, to their kids. Um, what, what you see typically, um, and then we could probably talk about, you know, um, how, how they, uh, we can address the first part of the question, which is, you know, how, how to essentially, you know, um, give your children, you know, that kind of drive, um, that, that, you know, puts you there. Yeah, it can be a real challenge because uh, lots of times when someone becomes ultra wealthy, they uh, have multiple homes and their kid goes to a $40,000 a year preschool and they have a private jet. Uh, and it's hard to have someone grow up with a sense of being thrifty or resourceful or having a really strong work ethic when it's obvious the family has a lot of money and they have 
seven different cars and can go to whatever school they want without a second of consideration, right? So I think it's pretty hard. Um, but and so a lot of families struggle with that. And some just some just give up on trying to instill the entrepreneurism and say, well, just do whatever you want, go be a painter, be a teacher, whatever. And they don't try to really instill the entrepreneurial gene in them. But some families set up a um, family bank, which again, could have all different types of unique missions. Um, but one way it could be used is to make it so that the family members don't get an inheritance beyond money for their first house, for education, maybe a medical emergency. Otherwise, the only other way to get money besides maybe one or $2 million for those previous reasons uh, would be if you apply to the family bank with the business idea that the elders in the family approve and review and give feedback on. And then, okay, you want to buy this chain of three pizza huts or you want to buy this e-commerce business, uh, some direct-to-consumer business uh, on Amazon or something. Well, let's review that plan. Make sure you're not overpaying. Make sure that you have a solid approach. Make sure this actually makes sense for you to own and run. And if it does, then you can earn your inheritance through owning that business and the profits that come from it because that makes you work for it and learn business and instills more values rather than just giving you $10 million to buy Ferraris and a condo in Monaco. Makes a lot of sense. Makes a lot of sense. I like the idea of the, the family bank. It's almost like a shark tank in, um, you know, in, in the family. Um, right. uh, you, you just need to, you know, um, yeah, prove, prove your worth. Um, are there any other strategies to, towards, um, you know, um, driving that walk ethic, you know, um, you see yeah. um, that that's, that's worked. Yeah, I think forcing the children to work outside the family business and not getting them jobs and making them kind of survive on their own uh, a bit in the, the real world uh, can be a good thing for sure. And then also, I think maybe not uh, exposing them to exclusively to the philanthropy alone. I think some families say, oh, well, the next gen, they're interested in you know, uh, philanthropy and maybe I'll have my daughter help run the foundation. And then the only thing in their brain is that, you know, money must be coming out of our nose because we're just giving it away all over the place instead of focusing on making it or earning it or creating uh, value through business ideas. Mm-hmm. And, you know, families defend it by saying, oh, well, we're giving back, we're being generous. I say, okay, if that's your goal to instill those values alone, but it's going to do the opposite of instilling the value of being resourceful and hardworking and uh, trying to figure out how to create value. Not that it's bad to give away money, but the kid would be better off put into a sales position or help grow a new business unit or help run some small $2 million acquisition the family did and help run that and see if it blows up in their face or if they can run it and learn the hard way how to manage employees and manage a PL and do advertising and grow mm-hmm. sales and manage a sales force. It's night and day different. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, those two things. I think that that's something that a lot of families don't think about enough, I think. Yeah. And, and I guess there are also a new set of challenges, you know, when you're trying to preserve wealth and, you know, when you're trying mm-hmm. to acquire wealth. Um, right. And there might be two, you know, different skill sets, but you still ha- need to have the attitude um, regardless. Yeah. It's, it's right. interesting. It's interesting. I guess also, you know, potentially, you know, make challenging them physically, <laughs> Um, right. so, so they have that grit, you know, but, uh, yeah, it's, it's interesting. It was, it was just a segue really, um, but sure. given the fact that you're exposed to, um, you know, to, to families and, um, you, you'd have, you know, firsthand experience. Okay. Um, let's delve down into your business, in, into, um, your funnel. I'm, I'm, you know, on your email list, I see the brilliant things you're doing. Um, and, how old is the business? When did you start? Um, and what were your challenges in the first um, five years of business? And how did you, you know, sort of, you know, double down and grow um, from there? Sure. Yeah. Uh, so we started in uh, June 2007. So it's been 12 years running the business. And um, in the first year or two, uh, we were providing content on hedge funds, capital raising, and family offices. And then we figured out that if we focus primarily on family offices, but where it was also helpful to those in investor relations or that needed to raise capital for their operating business, et cetera, that uh, it would be more sustainable just in case hedge funds came in and out of favor. It's more stable, uh, we thought, to provide education on something that will always be in demand, which is access to an investor type. So we focused on positioning ourselves as the number one expert globally 
on the investor type of a family office. And we started out just by writing a lot of articles. And uh, literally, the beginning was just looking at the top 500 keywords that people searched related to family offices. And I wrote two blog posts on every single keyword. And then I would put those out on eZine articles and old school article syndication websites. And then we launched some training programs and that went well in the data division. And then we started... um, Were these offline training programs or online training programs? uh, Online. Online. And the, the first day we launched our uh, certification, I was sitting in a burrito shop, I remember, and we I pushed send and I watched the PayPal and uh, we brought in $35,000 in one day. And I realized that we had something there uh, with our blog and our email list alone. And then we got kind of accidentally on the front page of the Boston Globe and then got oh. invited to speak, you know, 100 plus times in 14 countries. And basically, that just taught me like this momentum of it just taught me that I was in the right place at the right time with this content. So I just tripled down. That's when I bought familyoffices.com, did a book deal with Wiley, found out books help a lot, started hosting our own events, started writing more books. And then, you know, 12 years later, we've done 114 events and written 13 books. We've produced 1,800 videos and we've got about half a million email opt-ins organically that have all came in to download our free books and, you know, listen to our webinars, etc. So, um, you know, I think that... Uh, it's the combination of family office expertise and capital raising expertise with marketing chops that mm. makes the magic. And that's why I'm able to survive in the family office jungle. And exactly, which is back to exactly what you were saying at the start of the interview, where, you know, mm-hmm. having two skills to, you know, and being a master in two skills is essential right. for survival in, in most industries. Right, right, right. Not just uh, expertise in one area. And mm-hmm. I, and especially, you know, thought leadership is so helpful on bringing in a client where there's a long-term sale and the trust is important. So if you're selling something that's expensive or that people are very careful about buying and that's the niche that you're in uh, and you're listening to this podcast, then I think thought leadership uh, should be even more important to you than maybe someone who has an inexpensive product that's an impulse purchase and might not need to write a book on that on that that area, perhaps. You know? Interesting. Um, so your what what your average deal size is for um you know people that sign up for for family offices that sign up with um with, with the business yeah sure so on the conference side uh we charge either 199 or 299 a month and um you know our average customer value is, is a bit over two thousand dollars and we've got uh coming up on around a thousand you know subscribers in that model uh but then on our uh, family office side, our average client is at about 200 million net worth. And we're typically negotiating a retainer on that side. And it would be anywhere from a, you know, 2000 to $10,000 a month retainer uh, per client closed. And then we can get upside on deals that they invest in through us. So we do a uh, performance only structure and take 10% of the upside on on projects that they get invested in through our advisory help. Um, and I, I think importantly, a lot of people think you can't meet an investor or you can't meet the ultra wealthy through social media, or these people only work through referrals. There's no other way to get to them. But I've just found that thought leadership, uh, reverses the funnel and it makes it so they're cold calling me and I barely have time to get back to them versus me having to call them. And they're like, who's this guy? You know, I don't, I don't have time to reply to random people calling me. Um, and so I think for anyone listening, whether it's a business or for raising capital, if you can approach it, instead of going to a lake with a spear and trying to catch some fish, if you spend some time to look around the lake and see where the water's flowing and see where the fish are jumping, and you position yourself like a grizzly bear so the fish are jumping in your mouth instead of chasing them in the open lake, it's a much more enjoyable experience. And I've experienced both types of approaches. (laughs) Interesting. Very, very interesting. And what would you... In, in your, you know, you talked about thought leadership. Mm-hmm. Um, in thought leadership, what's, I don't want to dilute this into, you know, a very simple model, but what's been the most important pillar in, in, in your, you know, thought lead, leadership initiatives? If, if somebody sure. was to start what you're doing now today, which would be right. compatible, you know, okay. But if, you know, right, right, right. What, what would you tell them to do now um, to, to get this thought leadership going? Sure. Uh, this is an idea I got from Jeffrey Gittimer. And uh, he said in one of his books that it's his number one strategy, but he knows that almost no one will follow it, is to identify a unique audience and then just give away value to them every week. 
And he said, if you do that for one to two years, you'll be a local expert. If you do it for three to four years, you'll be a regional expert. And if you do that for seven plus years, you'll be a global expert. And so that's just simply what I did. And so the f- I used to do it all online in the first couple of years. And then I realized when having a paper book out there, a paperback book or giving a live talk, that it really raised the credibility. Uh, so for a high quality client, um, you know, it would make it move faster. And so I realized that a lot of our funnel is helping us get real world relationships and real world sales and engagements going, even though it's using all these different digital assets on LinkedIn, Facebook, you know, email lists, et cetera. Interesting. 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 Um, you talked about the book. Um, mm-hmm. You're published by Wiley. Are you self-published or um, do, do you? Yeah, do you... We, have, um, we have a couple of books out from Wiley, one with Bloomberg, but then we've self, self-published 10 out of the 13 because we realize that most of the sales and the pushing of the book happens from our own email list and our own marketing. And then we can edit the book anytime we want to. So if I get a new client and they're a 10,000 a month retainer client and they want to be featured in one of my books, I could update the book today, upload the PDF, and now they're in my book starting tomorrow or if I interview someone and then they start competing against me, I can take them out of the book. And if you publish with a big fancy publisher, it might you know, be cool to tell someone that you did, but then you have to buy your own books at a higher price and everything's a pain. It's not really worth it. Uh, so we've learned a lot of things the hard way about uh, publishing books. And on this 13th book, uh, we've done things we haven't done on any other books and uh, just making them as engaging as possible so that when someone picks up your book, they got for free as a PDF or for $4 on Amazon, it's like a $1,000 multimedia resource. And there's webinars in there and videos of you talking while traveling and you know downloadable worksheets and PDFs and a whole bunch of things that most other books don't provide yeah. and a whole bunch of ways for them to email you, interact with you, et cetera. Yeah. So I'm on Amazon now. Um, I'm, I'm having a look at some of your books. Um, mm-hmm. Your, your pricing strategy is, um, is, is far and wide. Um, there's some, you know, $30 plus books and then mm-hmm. they're, they're one that just, you know, go for, for, for a dollar, you know, um, Kindle for a dollar 31 actually. And then paperback, you know, $3.59, that, that equivalent. Um, what's your, um, what, what would you suggest? What, yeah. What's your advice? Um, strat- why do you, wh- why is this, why is it so wide? You know, most sure, of them sure. are actually very expensive, mo- not want to expensive, but most of them are over $30 and you have one, two, three books that are under $7. Yeah. So the, uh, the expensive ones are almost all, uh, Wiley Bloomberg, okay. uh, books. Uh, the ones that are less expensive are almost all ones that, uh, I have put together. Okay. Uh, myself. And I think that um, one unique thing I've tried with my most recent book, which is really about the headaches of 100 million plus net worth clients and $100 million net worth, you can call that centimillionaire, just like billionaire means 1 billion plus net worth. So my latest book called Centimillionaire Migraines, I price that one kind of moderately because if you can't afford $20, you're probably not a centimillionaire. Like when I buy books, I don't even look at the price. If I want it, I just buy it. I don't even know how much I just spent. And I'm guessing most centimillionaires are the same way. They're just going to grab it. It's on Amazon. It's not going to bankrupt them. Uh, and so it kind of, uh, I don't want that one to be as mass. It really is written for the ultra wealthy alone. It's targeting that kind of sub niche. And so for that reason, I priced it at around $20. For someone starting out, you'll get the biggest distribution of your books and your ideas and get the most potential clients by charging less so that there's no risk in someone's mind that it's going to be a bad purchase. So with some decent reviews and a very low price, I say, oh yeah, well, I'll try it out. Four bucks and what do I got to lose? And you don't want any barriers to them absorbing your ideas. The only reason to price it more at a $12.99, $19.99, et cetera, would be that you're going to be spending some Google AdWords or Amazon pay-per-click and you want to at least come close to breaking even or only lose a little bit of money and have some of that marketing kind of be reimbursed through the sales. Mm-hmm. That'd be the only reason I think to go for the nineteen ninety nine price. Otherwise, I would just price it low and then spread it far and wide. And we'll take people searching Google AdWords, take them to our website like capitalraising.com, give them an 80-page book on how to raise capital. So if they search for how to raise capital on Google, we're bringing them to... Uh, our website and giving away the book. And then we get an opt-in and my team can call them and see if they want to come to a capital raising workshop or if they need help with uh, pitchdex.com. We do like materials for people, uh, marketing materials. So 
uh, it, it's great for lead gen. They're good lead gen assets. Yeah. Yeah. It's amazing. It's amazing. Um, I can't seem to find this Santa Millionaire book, but um, yeah, I, I've seen the full portfolio of, of books here, um, which is just amazing. Okay. Um, so um, after the, the, the books, you know, you have 500,000, you know, um, you know, people, do, do you, do you communicate, how often do you communicate with them? What does your, you know, email funnel and email communication look like, um, you know, um, from, from your end? How, how sure. do you manage it with that volume, with that scale? Yeah, we've got a lot of segmentation. We have them segmented by where they opted in, by geography. So we've got about 100 different segments across it. And we have uh, five or six different businesses within our business. Um, so things are segmented on multiple levels. So some emails might go out to almost everyone in all geographies, like a PDF newsletter about our whole brand that would be appealing to both investors and those raising capital might go out globally to, to almost everyone. Whereas a email on our capital raising workshop will just go out to the capital raising type people. And as the event comes closer, because it's in Toronto or London or San Francisco, then we'll reduce it geographically to be a regional email. And then as it's the day before the event, we'll only email people in the city of San Francisco or people who clicked on the link and are on like a hot list for being really interactive with that content. So that's because we do things that are happening in the real world with live events. Um, but we have found that um, having it highly segmented just gives you a lot of options and you just get better response rates that way. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, in, in a way, um, you remind me of, um, of Michael Matthews. He came in, he's in a completely different niche from you. Um, he, he, he's into fitness. Mm -hmm. Um, but the core of his business is writing its content. It's, you know, it's always been content and, you know, um, similar to you, he segued from, you know, um, content. So he he was writing lots of blog posts and eventually he moved into, um, books, you know, um, actual books. I can't remember when they're self-published or with a publisher Mm -hmm. and, um, eventually created a product, you know, physical product, you know, um, you know, supplements and things like that. Um, and yeah, he's, he, you know, you're just in a different space, you know, I think, um, you know, and, and it's amazing how the power of content, you know, how, you know, content is so attractive if you, you know, do it really, really well. Um, right. Talks about the family, you know, office space, you know, being really cutthroat in terms of competition. How is it that you survived? Um, and, um, how, how is it that you've been able to outspend, you know, um, competitors and grow consistently over the last 12 years? Sure. A big part of it is just the mindset that no matter how long it was going to take, that we're going to be number one or top three in the niche globally, and we're going to do whatever hard work was needed and take a really, you know, 10, 20 year approach. So if somebody is 58 with tons of expertise, even if they have my same energy, they're not in this business for the next 20, 25 years. They're probably looking at retiring in seven years or working half time pretty soon. So I'm doing things that would make no sense if I was just in this for the next seven years because the ROI would be hard to calculate. It's a long-term ROI. It's planting seeds. It's giving away more than all of my top competitors combined. That's a big part about the advantage. And I think that you know when uh, Einstein won the Nobel Prize, a journalist said, oh, well, you, uh, you discovered relativity. That's amazing. And he said, no, I didn't. Uh, when I was born, there was already people working on relativity but for the past 10 years, I've done nothing but think about relativity. And I provide content and think about nothing but family offices, the ultra wealthy, and how to help people access them or how to help people set up their family office for that. And so for the last 12 years, I've just been doing that with uh, a focus on documenting the journey, giving away a lot of content, you know, being as generous as I, po- as I possibly can as I go. And other people in my space are not being generous or they're newer to the space or they've been in the space a lot longer than me, but they're old, old school, keeping all their secrets close to vest and charging $500 for their white paper. And meanwhile, I get it distributed to 50,000 people instead of the 400 people that read their white paper because they're charging a premium for their content. So you're really going wide and then you're funneling down. And, and that's just, you know, the funnel at the bottom of, you know, your wide, your, your much wider funnel, you know, is big. And building funnels within funnels. So at the beginning, it was, uh, I want to be the family office guy. And then so we kind of got there and we had the best selling book and familyoffices.com is the most visited and the family office podcast. Then we realized that 
this type of family office, a single family office, was the most valuable type. So we bought singlefamilyoffices.com. We did an annual event on single family offices alone. We wrote the first book with the word single family office in the name of it. But we realized then that the niche within the niche within the niche was people who are just starting their single family office because they don't have gatekeepers yet. They don't know anything yet. They need tons of help. They make expensive mistakes. So then we wrote a book called How to Start a Family Office. So when people are looking for that, it hits them right between the eyes with that exact book. And in teaching our capital raising workshops, I'm always telling people that you need to be the excedrin for the migraine. You need to figure out their pain points and cure them. And if they're trying to lose that belly fat for summer or they're trying to look better in their Warby Parker glasses, et cetera, you know, you need to be the solution for that pain point or what they're reaching out for all the time. And that's what led me to this, uh, the latest book, uh, Centimillionaire Migraines, is we want to be that excedrin for the ultra wealthy. And that's why when you read off my bio, our advisory shop is called Centimillionaire Advisors because we're one of the only firms globally that's catering just to centimillionaires, 100 million plus. And I think it's that mindset of being five niches deep and having funnels within funnels within funnels of always discovering like, hey, this is pretty valuable turf. And then once you're inside that sandbox, you realize that the top 6% of that sandbox in this little corner over here where no one else is focusing is the most valuable sandbox within your sandbox. And so we put a stake in that ground, get inside that sandbox, and then iterate again and again and again. So if somebody tried to compete against us, they could throw a million dollars at it and they wouldn't be able to compete with the layers of content that we've put around our sandboxes. Yeah, if there's anything, if there's, that was the most important thing in this conversation so far. And um, the, the takeaways in physical product businesses, if you, and you got me thinking, if you think about Apple, um, you know, when they were in the doldrum and um, Steve Jobs was kicked, <clears throat> kicked out and he came back again, um, their, their major funnel, let's just use an analogy, was the, the Mac, you know, the, the iMac and, you know, the, the, the MacBook, the iMac basically. And he improved on that. And then he saw another problem, which was like phones. And he brought the iPhone off the back of that, which was like a funnel within a funnel. And I guess, you know, listeners um, could learn a let, you know, from what you just said, is, you know, you might be, you know, um, serving a market with a particular product, but have you thought that there might be a follow-on product, um, which, you know, could, you know, which you, your audience, your wide audience, you know, your, your customer base, you know, actually have, you have a need for, and right. you know, why didn't you serve them, you know, by doubling down and doubling down and reinventing yourself till you actually find, you know, um, I'd say the treasure, you know, uh, right. the treasure and a treasure. It's almost right. like a chest you, of boxes and, you know, treasure boxes. And For sure. I think that what you just said has changed my whole, changed my whole life. Just being able to realize that if you identify a really valuable market and you design something that really hits them between the eyes with tons of genuine value, and you can own that small, highly valuable market. It doesn't matter how long it takes to get on top of that and really own it. If you can get there, then it's going to be highly valuable and people are going to have to come through you. And it doesn't matter if you're selling lotions and then you find out that arthritis lotion is less competitive and people will pay more for that or some CBD lotion or some sort of lotion that's specialized to a niche that people are ignoring. So you're providing all the lotion to the senior living facilities nationally and selling to them is now triple your business of what you were doing, competing with everybody on Amazon or whatever you stumble into. Um, I think there's always a higher value niche within a niche. There's usually less competition because less people have specialized and said, oh, we want to really cater to that high-end group. Absolutely spot on. Absolutely spot on, Richard. Yeah, amazing, amazing stuff. Um, yeah, enjoying this, you know, thoroughly enjoying this. Um, so, you know, you're no stranger to funnels and, you know, marketing, um, who have been your go-to experts, you know, go-to mentors, um, that have, you know, um, you know, giving you the knowledge, um, giving you the, the mindset, maybe mindset is internal, but, you know, giving you that, um, you know, the, the, the tools to, to, um, to build, build this out over the years. 
Yeah, sure. So I'll uh, who I'll did you start it chrono- chronologically? You know, so sure, sure. In 2007, who did you you know speak to and, uh, and how's it? Yeah, yeah. Uh, at the very beginning, it was Jeffrey Gittimer and Brian Tracy. Um, they first planted a lot of ideas in my brain that have decided how our business has has grown. Uh, then Eben Pagan was most influential very early on, and then Eben Pagan opened my brain to a whole bunch of different experts. Uh, such as Robert Cialdini, Dean Jackson, Frank Kern, Dan Kennedy, Joe Polish, um, a bunch of individuals uh, that have deep expertise in how to share content, how to position yourself, be great at marketing, et cetera. Yeah, and then most recently, uh, Dan Sullivan, um, uh, who's been most helpful in recent couple years. Um, And then... um, how deeply do you engage with these experts? Um, do you um, just buy their books? Do you um, are they your mentors? Um, you know, do you go for their group training? Um, how deep would you go with with an expert? Uh, pretty deep. I'd rather find one or two people that I really thought were high value, and then read everything from them. Like sometimes for one year, I'll take somebody and then buy every book that they've written and subscribe to their one or two podcasts. And I'll do a media fasting. And for one 12-month period, I won't read anyone else's books, listen to anyone else's podcasts, and I'll read everything they've written and get their podcast. So in my brain is just this information from one expert that I know is spot on for what I need to be hearing. So I don't have voices. And that's the thing. That's why my business works. And that's what brands should typically be doing is targeting a client so well that they feel like everyone else is talking Chinese, but you really get them. And at the beginning with Brian Tracy... And uh, Jeffrey Gittimer, that was the case. And then it was Evan Pagan and lately uh, lately Dan Sullivan. But then you can literally think, what would this person do in my shoes? And mm-hmm. I spend money to go meet them in person. Like Brian Tracy, I've been on his TV show. He's been, he's been on my podcast. Jeffrey Gittimer, I've been at his workshop. I stayed after till the room was empty and I talked to him and thanked him for the help. And then he was on my podcast uh, recently and I was on his. And then Evan Pagan, I've been on hot seats on stage with him. I uh, spent time talking to him and um, we've, uh, we've kept in touch over the years. And then with Dan Sullivan, uh, I've, I'm in his highest level group as well. So for me, it's not about reading a book a day. It's about finding the most valuable source of the knowledge and then just sucking up like a vacuum, everything that they say and getting inside of how they're thinking so that you are uh, playing a game using the tools and assets that they've learned the hard way over their whole career. So for me, that's been really helpful and important. Thank you very, very, very much for, for that. I, I've, I've not, I know someone has said, um, mentioned, you know, about blocking off um, noise, you know, more or less, but no one's actually explained it this way. Um, and I guess, you know, um, these guys download their brain basically into their, their books, into their assets and um, you're you're pretty much absorbing that. So um, cutting out, you know, I love that media. Did you say the media blackout or media yeah, fast? Yeah, fast. Yeah, the media fast. Yeah, um, I love that too. Um, amazing, amazing. What other productivity hacks um, do you have um, for, for for listeners? Sure. Um, one thing I've gotten from uh, Dan Sullivan was just having my Tuesdays and Thursdays be where I typically do like paperwork. Uh, little phone calls that just need to get out of the way, little like errands or things in the business that uh, maybe aren't adding a ton of value. And one day I might might not even be doing those things anymore. And then Monday, Wednesday, Friday, I try to focus my time more and do more strategic work and work on the next big launch or product or video recording, etc. So as much as possible, I try to focus my time into batches. And then I'm also just very strict on uh, who gets on my calendar and who gets my time. And so a lot of people want to meet in my position. They want to meet and brainstorm or they want to meet and pick my brain or they want to get on the phone, but they don't have an agenda or they want to meet. They want me to drive 45 minutes North to their office to meet, but they're not telling me why they want to meet. So I've just learned to say no to almost everything and have people meet with my team, talk to my team, call my team. And the only people talking to me is uh, someone who has a podcast like yourself or someone is worth <laughs> or someone worth a hundred million plus or a big strategic partner or top sponsor of our conferences or something. Otherwise, everyone should just talk to my team. Like I'm not the salesperson for membership, so I don't need to take the call. They can explain how our model works. They can explain how. So I think that's really important and just not feeling bad about saying no 
uh, to a lot of things that are trying to claim your time if it's not part of your agenda. Yeah, super, super, super important on your time. Okie dokie. Yeah, so um, I guess before I let you go, um, I I have what's called lightning round um, where I ask you um, five sets of questions. And if you could use a single, you know, um, answer, um, a single sentence rather to to answer the questions would be brilliant. Sure. Okay. Right. How do you hire people? Uh, we use LinkedIn and if they don't smile and they don't seem like very quick learners, then we don't hire them. Awesome. Okay. What are the three indispensable tools for managing your business? Uh, we use Slack, HubSpot, and then I would say just social media for client acquisition. Yeah. I forgot to say, um, use HubSpot for managing your, um, your, your funnels. Okay. Yep. Um, what's been your best mistake to date? I mean, uh, setback that's giving the biggest feedback. Uh, for me, it was having someone in multiple roles that they weren't excellent at. So I had someone who was an operations guy, but he was also doing sales. Mm-hmm. And when I broke that apart and gave someone a focused job of just doing sales, I could hold them much more accountable. Awesome. Okay. Um, what one piece of advice would you give retailers looking to raise capital? I think just have very high integrity in the sense that everything needs to be integrated. What you say has to be what you do. Your team members have to fit your values what you tell an investor has to align with reality and just make sure there's nothing in your life that's uh, being an anchor and slowing you down and being, you know, friction. Awesome. Okay. If you could choose a single book or resource that has made the highest impact on how you view building a business, which would it be? Uh, Mastering the Rockefeller Habits by Vern Harnish. Awesome. Okay. I heard of it too. Richard, um, if, you know, people wanted to follow you, you know, on social, you, you have a lot, you know, to offer you, you're a thought leader in your space. Where's the best place for them to, to, to follow you and connect? Um, you know, LinkedIn is the, the best place. Um, and, uh, they can find me there pretty easily under family office club. We've got a company page there. They could follow. It's probably the easiest. Um, and then familyoffices.com and capitalraising.com are the two best resources. You have free books and such on, and see what we're up to. Okay. I'll link through to your LinkedIn. I just um, actually connected with you on LinkedIn. It's been awesome. an absolute pleasure, you know, having you on. Um, I really appreciate your time. And, um, you know, a lot of those nuggets you, you, you dropped, you know, I'm going to listen to this myself again. Um, and I'll ensure that the show notes are, you know, quite comprehensive. Great. Awesome. Thanks for having me here. Appreciate okay. it. Appreciate, appreciate it too. Okay. Bye. So that was a wrap on this week's episode of 2X e-commerce. Remember, you can catch me every week and also send your questions and comments on Twitter using the hashtag 2XEcommerce. Keep yourself in the loop by subscribing to this podcast on iTunes or your favorite podcasting app. It only takes a few seconds and it means you'll get the most up-to-date episodes to help you grow your online store. Do have a good one till I catch you on the next show. Bye-bye.